Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine through conversations with scientists and researchers. Before we get into today's episode, I have a really exciting announcement. To celebrate the end of Season 3, we are going to be doing a giveaway. So we are going to be giving away some amazing CBD products from one of our partners, Millie. You can check them out at millie.co. Um, to a lucky listener who leaves us a five-star review on iTunes. So that could be you. All you need to do is go to iTunes and write us a review, tell us your favorite episode in the review, and then go ahead and take a screenshot and email it to CannabisScienceToday at gmail.com. If you've already left us a review, you're still eligible to win. Please just take a screenshot and send it to CannabisScienceToday at gmail.com, and that way I'll know how to get in touch with you. So it is just such a joy and honor to have these conversations and share them with the world. And if this podcast has brought you any value, I would love to hear from you. And I would also love to send you some CBD products. So, so please leave us a review. And thank you so much for your support. On to the episode. Today, we are featuring Dr. Kevin Banke, who is a research investigator in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. He has a doctorate in environmental health sciences, and his current research focuses on the therapeutic applications of cannabis and psychedelics. As many of you are aware, Oregon became the first state to decriminalize psilocybin in 2020, and many other states are expected to follow suit. In this episode, we discuss an article that Dr. Banky wrote about what lessons we learned from cannabis legalization that we can apply to the psychedelic highway. As we look back on this past decade or so of cannabis legalization, what can we learn and how can we avoid repeating the same mistakes? We talk about whether the Western medical system is ready for psychedelics, and he shares some ideas for systematic data collection, the role of physicians in this emerging scene, and how we can make this medicine accessible to all people and not just wealthy communities. Well, Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I'm really excited to get to, uh, you know, some of your, your thoughts and your most recent article on applying lessons from cannabis to the psychedelic highway but before we get there, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, your research background. And particularly, I know you've done some research on patients with chronic pain and how they use cannabis. So yeah, where do you begin to, to share your, your journey, your scientific journey? Uh, so my scientific journey with cannabis and psychedelics, it started with my PhD, which began in 2012 and in 2017 at the University of Michigan, where I was in the School of Public Health. And although I was studying water quality um, and transmission of bacteria in water as my main PhD topic, which I found fascinating, still found find fascinating, uh, I did a bunch of side projects on the way, one of which was to understand how cannabis could be used in the chronic pain context and what the results of that were, um, including changes in opioid and other medication use. Um, and I had a personal interest in this as somebody who had received a fibromyalgia diagnosis in 2009. And uh, it seemed like a 
really nice way to channel this personal lived experience into a side project to really get a better understanding of what was going on in this quickly changing legal and medical environment. And so in that project, we surveyed people with chronic pain who were using medical cannabis and were patrons of a local dispensary and asked them, well, what has changed for you? What are the outcomes of your use? And many reported that they decreased their opioid consumption as a result of using medical cannabis, that their pain uh, management was better. Um, and when I published those results, um, I ended up moving out of the water quality um, bacteria space <laughs> into studying cannabis uh, and now also studying psychedelics. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting transition. And I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about uh, the specifics of this, this research project? It sounds like you were survey surveying patients with, with chronic pain um, who were also using opiates. And when you say opiates, you mean, you know, traditional kind of prescription painkillers? Yeah. So things like uh, Oxycontin or uh, Oxycodone or Percocet, um, things like that, Hydrocodone. And we're using that for chronic pain management. They said, okay, I'm now using cannabis. We asked them um, questions about how their medication use changed as a result of them starting medical cannabis. And they said, hey, my use decreased substantially. Um, on average, 64% uh, decrease among those who were using opioids. And not everybody in this study was using opioids, um, but you know, it was enough to really spark my interest in this space and, and want to do, you know, more studies that looked at that. So this, you know, that survey was something where we, you know, emailed people at a single time point, many of them had already made this change or had said that they had made this change um, when we surveyed them. So we didn't have data on them on you know, before they started using cannabis and after they started using cannabis, which is a limitation of the study and something that, you know, subsequent data from many different groups has, has shown that at least in, among a subset of people who do use medical cannabis, that they actually do substitute it quite effectively for other medications, um, not just opioids, but also, you know, anti-anxiety medications like benzodiazepines or antidepressants. Um, or other pain medications like uh, pregabalin. So um, that one small survey project kind of launched me into this space. And I've since done many, many uh, additional survey projects to understand, you know, outside of Michigan, where that first study was conducted, whether these trends are holding up in other places in the United States. Um, among people with different sorts of pain conditions like fibromyalgia, um, with different products like CBD or cannabidiol products versus medical cannabis products. And then also trying to understand why overall in the US people are using medical cannabis. Um, and you know, one of the reasons that I think this space has staying power for me, both personally and professionally, is because the data there is pretty clear that most the, the, the most common reason that people are using medical cannabis um, is for chronic pain. So there's just a huge unmet need and a really big uh, need as well to understand how to most effectively use the available medical cannabis products to, to create good treatment outcomes for people with pain. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it, I, it looks like you had a, another paper that I came across where you were looking at state registry data. Um, so to kind of compare the qualifying conditions, which patients are reporting, which makes them eligible for, for medical cannabis to um, some of the evidence from the National Academics of Science, Engineering and Medicine's reports on cannabis efficacy. So, so what did you learn from this? And, and it sounds like it does sound like a, the majority of patients are reporting chronic pain. So, so did you kind of find that chronic pain is one of the, the most treatable conditions as represented by the scientific evidence or yeah, what did you learn here? Well, so that paper was mainly just trying to look at all of the state states that had legalized medical cannabis, pulling the data from there to see what the most common reasons were that people um, had obtained their medical cannabis license. So in Michigan and many other states, you go to a physician, you say, hey, I have this condition, be it cancer, chronic pain. Um, there's there's many, many different qualifying conditions and symptoms that people can can uh, obtain a, a license with. But then the, the doctor signs off and authorizes, yes, this person have, has this condition. They can get a state license which then authorizes them to purchase or possess uh, cannabis legally. And so that paper was just looking at those overall national trends that we, you know, that we see there. They didn't say like among all those people using cannabis, whether or not they were having positive or negative or neutral experiences. Um, Unfortunately, many of the, well, unfortunately, since cannabis remains schedule one, uh, under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, it means that one of the things that um, states need to do and should be doing uh, is to protect uh, patient safety because they're, you know, those registries, if if the names were made public, are a list of people who are breaking federal laws by obtaining and using medical cannabis products. So I totally understand and, and agree that um you know, those should be kept confidential. It's just one of those situations where, you know, we can't get that granular and individual level data in the same way where we ask people about the outcomes of their use at this, you know, wide population based level because cannabis remains schedule one. Right, right. And it sounds like that that is kind of one of the important lessons that we need to learn from cannabis as we move forward into, um, you know, maybe psychedelic legalization or liberalization. But but before we get there, I, I would like to know you you reference you you said that you um, were looking at or you were surveying patients and different types of products they were using, whether they were CBD products or products purchased at a dispensary. Did you find any interesting insight, um, kind of on what products might or what you know types of products might be more effective or what patients might prefer when it comes to treating chronic pain? Yeah, that's a great question. So. I think one of the biggest things that I noticed is that one, people end up using just a wide variety of products uh, in a in a wide variety of ways. So some people really like to smoke or vaporize or use the inhalable products, and that's all they do. Some people do the same for edibles or tinctures, but the majority of people mix and match uh, multiple. Uh, ways of ingesting cannabis. And the same goes for CBD and THC. Like a, a few people like to use 
THC alone, a few people like to use CBD alone, but most people use them in combination. And so what this says to me is that it's really important to develop studies and to um, work with people in a way that acknowledges and um, works within this framework where people have access to this wide swath of products uh, and, and to teach them how to use them in a skillful and thoughtful way that addresses their own personal symptoms and helps them uh, minimize side effects and maximize benefit. Um, in, but, you know, mon chronic pain is also not monolithic. Um, even somebody who, say, has rheumatoid arthritis might respond differently to cannabis products than another person who has rheumatoid arthritis, depending on, you know, some of their underlying symptomologies. Maybe one person has fatigue and the other one also has comorbid sleep issues. So all those things really affect how we want to tailor those sorts of individual treatments. Um, and then I, I think the, the other big takeaway there is that variability of how people are kind of figuring out their own use routines is in stark contrast to most of the clinical trial data that have been published in which, you know, people usually have access to a single cannabis-based product that's used in a single way, um, which simply just doesn't match this richness and diversity of products that people are using on the medical cannabis market to help manage their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you actually already kind of hit on my next question, which was, you know, chronic pain is is such a, it can really encompass such a wide range of different conditions. And, you know, as we're learning from this past over a decade of cannabis legalization and liberalization, do you think listing chronic pain as a general eligible condition for medical treatment by cannabis is, is the best way to do it? Or do you think that, you, you know, especially when we kind of look at these intersections between um, research and product development and even, you know, purchasing cannabis in a dispensary and education, do you think this is, this is the most effective way to kind of um, advocate for, for medical cannabis use? I don't know if I'd say it's the most effective way to advocate for medical cannabis use, but I would say that, you know, what we do know is that the outcomes for conventional pain management medications are not very good. <laughs> so, you know, we think about, and I would say this in the chronic pain context specifically, but like we look at what has happened with opioids for chronic pain management. That's been a disaster. We like there are certainly a subset of people who do respond okay and don't need to dose escalate. But the way that um, prescription opioids were really pushed out there um, was typically not appropriate. And there should have been a lot of other things covered first, especially lower risk options and non pharmacological options. So, non medication options that we know to be effective. Um, and Unfortunately, that's not the way that our, our medical system went. Um, when it comes to cannabis, I mean, I think one of the things that is very attractive about many cannabis-based medicines compared to a lot of the conventional uh, pain medications is their relative degree of safety. People will almost never die of a cannabis-related overdose. 
there's possibility to, you know, a higher risk of say getting in a vehicle accident if you're high. We know that that's not a good idea. The same holds for being intoxicated on or to have mood alteration from another pain medication. But when it comes to like taking too much cannabis um, and dying, that just pretty much never happens. Um, the few cases in which it does are if somebody has like an underlying heart condition um, and or if there's some kind of contamination issue within that product. So uh, some something that I'm definitely concerned about is there are some synthetic cannabinoids um, that are much more potent than than THC in their effects, and those um, which you know historically have been used, some of which have been used uh, in preclinical models where you know you want a really potent cannabinoid compound so you can look at mechanistic pathways um, in in say like a mouse model or something. Those are not good for human consumption and their potency makes them significantly more dangerous than many plant-derived cannabinoids like CBD or THC. Um, so this beyond those issues of, you know, contamination or, you know, people with uh, underlying heart condition driving a vehicle, um, there's not really any higher risk of lethal overdose. Obviously, like other compounds and substances, cannabis is not without risk, but just the comparison um, from a safety side of things makes it a very attractive alternative and one that I think could be brought into conventional medicine in a thoughtful way. Um, but there's a lot of things that block that, including, as I mentioned before, the, the schedule one status, uh, under federal law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a great response. And I'm wondering just to, provide a little bit more color because one of the first things you said was um, that there aren't a lot of great alternative options um, in, you know, in the, the, tr the traditional medical model for patients with chronic pain. What was, if you're, if you're comfortable talking about your personal journey, what was, um, yeah, you, what were your alternatives before um, coming across cannabis? Well, I think of cannabis and all these other things is like, tools in a toolbox. You, as somebody who has had pain issues, the, the point has been how to mix and match all of these things in an effective way to uh, be able to live my life in a way that is meaningful and, um, and joyful. And so, you know, at different points, I tried some things like cyclobenzaprine, um, gabapentin, and, uh, and, and medical cannabis have also, of course, tried things like ibuprofen, which I developed an allergy to, uh, as well as aspirin and, and Tylenol. Um, and I think of those each as having their place. Um, but really for me, the most important and most effective things that I've used to, for pain management have not been medications, but been all the lifestyle things that, um, that I've then built up along the way. So sometimes I, you know, need the help of a medication if I'm having like a really tough time sleeping, because I know if uh, my sleep goes out the window, then pain gets worse. Uh, and, and that can start a negative feedback loop. But, um, you know, generally for me, like I, I started practicing yoga um, and have had a yoga practice since 2009 um, I did a yoga teacher training in 2016 and 2017 when I was finishing my PhD. 
Uh, I have a meditation practice that I, I do. I've done a lot of physical therapy and incorporated a lot of those um, exercises and processes into how I've set up my um, typical daily routines and my workspace. Uh, I'm careful about what I eat and try to eat more of a plant-based diet instead of loading up on processed foods. I don't drink alcohol because it just messes with my sleep too much. The list, you know, you, you can see that the list just goes on and on here. Um, uh, and then I also, you know, have done things like massage and acupuncture and, and things like that, that honestly, I find at this point, typically more effective and desirable in terms of their pain relieving capacities than, than most medications, which again, I, I, maybe it's the sensitivity that I have, but at this point I try to avoid them unless they're absolutely necessary, which is just not that frequently. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that because I do think sometimes what I really always want to be conscientious about when we're talking about cannabis or, or other psychedelics as medication is to talk about it in that same framework of, you know, pharmaceutical medication where you have a problem, you take a pill and you expect to feel better. But as we move into this realm of plant-based medicine or psychedelics, like it, it really, I think for these medicines to be most effective, it really has to happen in this holistic way where you're combining the, you know, you're combining this, but you're also nurturing other areas of your life that could be causing stress or leading to inflammation. So yeah, I, I just appreciate that, that insight. So we can kind of get away from, from that Western pharmaceutical model of illness, treat illness, um, and, and move more towards kind of this holistic um, approach. So let's, um, yeah, let's segue. Cause it sounds like you had this really interesting background in cannabis research and this personal journey. And then you wrote an article on, hey, this is what we learned from cannabis liberalization. These were kind of some big issues with it. And how can we apply this to uh, the psychedelic highway or, or this, this movement as we see the decriminalization and potential legalization of, of psychedelics in, in the US and potentially globally? So yeah, how did you get here? And um, let's start talking about some of these lessons. Yeah, so... I mean, I think one of the, the, how did you get here kind of question, um, I guess when it comes to researching, uh, any other schedule one drugs, cannabis is a gateway drug that might be the only context in which it is. Um, so, you know, I started studying cannabis and I was like, gosh, a lot of these same patterns that we've seen in cannabis, uh, are showing up with a lot of the, you know, the, these very compelling, but small clinical trials that we're seeing with psychedelics for major depression and uh, treatment resistant depression and smoking cessation and anxiety and depression among people with terminal illness. And, um, then also there's a lot of overlap between all those things that I just mentioned, addiction, anxiety, depression, um, and a lot of the common symptomology of chronic pain. And so it made me wonder, well, it, it seems very possible, if not likely that, um, you know, these will be these compounds, these, uh, psychedelic medicines could be used in the chronic pain context. Um, and so similarly to what I did with cannabis, I, uh, did some surveys of people who, uh, one survey of people with fibromyalgia, another of just people who use uh, psychedelics naturalistically to try to understand what that use looked like. Um, and then I'm also 
going to be leading a clinical trial of uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy for fibromyalgia um, at the University of Michigan. So um, just kind of getting into the space in a similar way of saying, seeing like, wow, there's this big unmet need um, and a lot of excitement and interest and people want to know more. They want to participate in clinical trials. They want to understand how we can fit this into, uh, into medicine. But then that schedule one piece is remaining the same. And we have this blueprint of how things went with cannabis um, that, you know, I followed through my research and, and all these things. And now I see the same thing coming with psychedelics. Um, so I think it was with that lens. And then, uh, you know, of course, working with my wonderful co-authors on, um, on this, this paper about cannabis and the psychedelic highway, um, the, you know, both Alan and Jenna are just so sharp and, and have really wonderful ideas, um, and insights about, you know, how, how this fits together. So, through our conversations and and all, all those previous pieces that I mentioned, you know, we came up with with this piece, and we're delighted to have it published. Cool. Well, let's yeah, let's dive into some of the specific things that you talked about in the paper. Um, one thing I found really interesting was that you said so because the scientific inquiry around therapeutic uses of cannabis was stifled by federal drug policy, exactly what you just said, you know, that it's a Schedule One drug that qualifying conditions were influenced by patient advocacy rather than um, comprehensive scientific data. And that even though the patients were recommending medical cannabis, that they couldn't like prescribe an, a treatment regimen. So, I mean, of course, a lot of these psychedelics are still Schedule One drugs, but, but how could this potentially shift and how could physicians and the medical community take a more active role um, as we, you know, in the developing, you know, these treatment regimens or helping patients kind of understand and, and best use these, these medicines for, for their particular conditions. What would be the advantages of this? Well, so I think there's some things that, you know, first relate to safety. So um, understanding who should absolutely not use um psychedelics is is probably an, a pretty important or who should be maybe not absolutely not but who should be considered a very or, or at higher risk population of people um to consider using psychedelics i think is really important um and then also thinking about the set and settings so the mindset of the people going in and then the physical and emotional and spiritual environment of the space in which people are are having these experiences that that's really important and it's something that um, physicians and healthcare providers can actually provide a good deal of, of education on for their patients if they th themselves had um, education about this. And so, you know, for example, uh, Alan Davis, who's one of the authors on this, he's leading a psychedelic center on ed for education and drug development at the Ohio State University. Um, and I, I believe that they're, you know, developing curricula to teach um, people how to, to, you know, deliver certain elements of, uh, of, of this therapy process, which, you know, at this point, because psychedelics remain schedule one, you know, obviously you can't go and get a prescription for them and it can be very, um, 
dangerous to a professional and their license status to uh, sit with somebody who's under the influence of one of these um, compounds, but they can provide um, the many of the same services that happen in the context of a clinical trial. So before somebody has a, you know, a, a psychedelic experience um, in one of these clinical trials, they undergo, you know, what's called preparation. So they work with um, a, a guide or a therapist or facilitator to get a better understanding of what's going to happen during um, this experience and what are what is their intention going in and uh, just building a rapport and understanding what their life is like, what they're hoping to get out of this um, and where they have the possibility to potentially make some changes in their life assuming that the experience maybe helps them get a little bit less stuck in those patterns. And then after the experience, there's what's called the integration period, which can also be done um, legally at this point um, in which, you know, the, the, that same therapist or therapy team could then reconnect with the person who had the experience and say, okay, so what came up? Let's talk about it. What are the places that your intention aligned with the experience and what kind of behavior change do you want to enact and how can we help you with that and integrate it into your life? Um, and so I think that those are places that there could be immediate synergy within the medical system, for example. Mm-hmm. So there was a recent article in the New York Times. I'm not sure if you if you saw it, but it, it was, I forget the name of it. I'll link it in the show notes, but it was essentially about like taking the magic out of magic mushrooms and how, you know, there kind of is this desirable trend in the scientific community or in the medical community to, to use some of the psychedelic medicines and plant-based medicines, but kind of just extract compounds from them that are known to change brain chemistry or shift brain chemistry. Um, so... I'm wondering what, what do you think are, uh, I, I see so many advantages, of course, of including physicians and the medical community, like in, um, the distribution of psychedelic medicine, but, but at the same time, I don't necessarily know if this, you know, the way that the Western medical model model has been established is kind of ready for maybe the spiritual implications of, of how these, how these molecules work and how these molecules actually create change in people's psyches. So, yeah, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, especially, I know you, you are uh, a biologist and you, you, you do work within this medical community, but it sounds like you also have a holistic practice outside of that as well. Do you mind repeating the the question? So I I, I feel like it, that that's a really big question, and I want to just make sure I'm answering it in a thoughtful and maybe more targeted way. So do you mind uh, repeating that for me? So I guess my bigger question here that maybe I've been tiptoeing around is is the the Western medical community ready for psychedelics? No, I don't think they are right now. I think there's a lot of work that we need to do to help prepare ourselves both in our bodies, in our education, in our policy, um, and honestly, in our spiritual practices as well to, to think about how we might want to incorporate some of these uh, 
why like historically used medicines uh, like psychedelics and cannabis into our medical system. There's a lot of work to be done. That's one of the reasons that my co-authors and I wrote this article. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a complicated question. So, so thank you for the answer. Um, because of course, I mean, when we talk about uh, data collection, when we talk about clinical trials, you know, um, y- yes, absolutely. Like there's, there's so much to learn um, from what happened with cannabis and and what didn't happen with cannabis and all of the things went wrong. But, but at the same time, I, I think there is this big realm of, um, you know, I think the spiritual and the mystical experiences that come with a lot of psychedelic use, the, the medical and the scientific community don't necessarily have ways to measure that. And it makes, it makes this a really interesting frontier, but also, um, you know, how, how do we, how do we integrate that when, when the, the tools for, for capturing it aren't, aren't there? So, uh, <laughs> but, but we can move on. No, I, I'm happy to just, can I weigh in on that really quick? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to be okay to sit with uncertainty. And we can, I, I think that's something that it's really hard for us to do societally. And maybe that's a practice that we should all engage a little bit more um, because again, we're, we're trying to, to deal with questions that are so much bigger than, you know, does somebody's pain score go from a seven to a five <laughs> um, or does their, their score on a questionnaire change in such and such a way? And I, th- I think it's just really important to be willing to look bigger and acknowledge sometimes we don't necessarily know how this is working or how it can best be utilized. And we, but we are open to experimenting with it and to do that in many different ways, as long as we're being thoughtful and respectful and inclusive um, and being willing to, you know, shake off some of the conventional thinking. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I agree. And there, there's a quote from Carl Jung that sometimes I, I come back to that's like, I shall not commit the fashionable stupidity of regarding everything I cannot explain as a fraud. And, and I really like, yeah, I think that that comfort with with uncertainty and not being able to measure or know anything, which sometimes in the Western world, I think we've gotten so disconnected from. Um, so so I think this is an opportunity to to come back to that in in a meaningful way. But I, yeah, but let's, let's take it back to, yeah, some of the other lessons um, that we, that we can learn from the past, you know, several years in cannabis. And you mentioned in the paper as well, that um, something that we're already starting to see, which we saw in cannabis too, was that monitored psychedelic therapy might be really limited in its availability. If people, if insurance doesn't cover it and people can only pay out of pocket, then it's only going to be accessible to, um, you know, very wealthy individuals. So, so I'm wondering kind of, yeah, what, what, what were your, your um, observations on that and, and what are your thoughts and how things could, could be different in, in psychedelic liberalization? Yeah. I mean, I think w- one of the places that, um, I think all eyes are looking at this point is Oregon. You know, they've that state has decriminalized uh, many different illicit substances, including psychedelics, and 
Uh, they are putting together infrastructure to uh, help provide a safe place for people to take psilocybin and have some of these experiences. And so I think, you know, going back to that point of it being open to experimenting and seeing what works, like we should look at what happens with Oregon, see how it shakes out, see our outcomes better with people who have, you know, classically trained therapists, or is there also, you know, some amount of training that somebody could receive who's, you know, just a, a thoughtful, grounded human who maybe doesn't have a medical degree, but could be, you know, actually very helpful in healing to be there for one of one of those experiences. Uh, we we simply don't know scientifically that the difference between those. And I think those training requirements are still being figured out um, in Oregon. Um, but I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of unknowns that can be looked at and and understood in those ways and we should see we should see which places are most effective and what which uh regimens or treatments or ways of doing things are most effective and then try to scale those into the new states and then continue this process in an iterative way um this could also happen in combination with something that we mentioned uh in the article as well of of trying to actually collect data in a systematic way on safety and treatment outcomes. So this didn't happen almost at all with cannabis, but if it's done thoughtfully with psychedelics, then we we could see. So but let me stop for a moment and pull uh, out an example. So in many of the clinical trials right now, there's a lot of concern about people who either currently have or who have a family history of a psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder um, having these compounds because it, you know, is there a possibility that, you know, this big experience could trigger some sort of, uh, some sort of, you know, lasting issue and, and mental health issue among those individuals. Now, unfortunately, we don't have much data on whether or not this is happening in a naturalistic setting, but it's out of an abundance of caution that, you know, the Food and Drug Administration and the Institutional Review Boards and all those people say, let's make sure that, that those are exclusionary conditions. In this naturalistic context where it's going to be occurring, let's make sure that if, if you know, that we're doing a maybe some some health screening on people before they undergo this so we can see oh does that hold up and if so then we know and we can make sure that people who adults who are still choosing to do this and have that family history or current condition maybe they get extra supports or um they it, like if they insist on going through with this therapy as well as potentially having extra access to other services um, that are known to be evidence-based and, and helpful for treatment of those conditions. So I think there's things like that as well that could really be embedded uh, in a thoughtful way here. And, you know, to your point about, um, you know, if there's, if there's not insurance coverage or even if there is insurance coverage, this being something that's mainly available for people who are wealthy, unfortunately, we live in a capitalist model where that's typically what happens with with new therapies like this. Um, and, you know, we, we want to make sure it's available to people. Um, and 
you know, it's it's a space where in some ways, because there'd be a decriminalization aspect, um, that there's more flexibility than there might be if it was a pure medical model. Um, because, you know, again, then there's the question of, is a psychedelic therapist, is a therapist who provide, who's in the psychedelic sessions, um, are they, you know, a psychiatrist? Are they a clinical psychologist? Are they a social worker? Are they some, uh, you know, a thoughtful individual who's received, you know, some amount of training and passed some state or uh, municipal uh, certification program? We simply don't know at this point uh, the difference between the treatment outcomes with with people uh, who have received those different levels of um, of training. So I think there's a lot of open questions. I think it's important to proceed with an abundance of caution and be thoughtful about this, especially given that you know these compounds do make people pretty. They they can lead to a state of suggestibility um, that can uh make it mm, i'm just gonna pause here actually because i feel like i'm just rambling well you did talk about the systematic this systemic data collection Mm -hmm. so this is something best case scenario you know now that organ has decriminalized psilocybin how would this model work let's say best case scenario for for researchers um so that we can really kind of gauge this effectively like who would be collecting the data what would they be collecting how would they be collecting it etc yeah, I mean, I think it would be great if there was some way to do this where we would, of course, still need to protect um, this, the safety and identity of the people who are undergoing these therapies because it does still remain Schedule 1, which means that they're at higher risk. And even if it was not Schedule 1, like if that changed overnight, there's still a lot of historical stigma associated with uh, psychedelic use. So we'd still want to protect people's identity. In fact, that's what we, you know, do in, in medicine anyways with HIPAA. Um, and then in terms of who is collecting the data, I think that this is a great place to, to have a, you know, community-based participatory research model where you have, uh, people from, uh, the community, from patient groups, from medicine, from policy, uh, makers, um, and high quality scientists all come together and say, well, these are the data that are most important to us to collect. Um, these are the ones that would be most useful, say, from a medical standpoint or a policy standpoint or, you know, a cultural standpoint. And to do that in a collective way that um, that really prioritizes those needs um, from all those different groups. And then in terms of, you know, who actually then would collect it and how it would collect it. I'm guessing that would vary based on um, those conversations as well as the needs of the state. Um, perhaps there could be a, you know, a committee or board of people who are designated to, to do that. And they have, you know, potential protections uh, to ensure that, you know, those data cannot be seized by law enforcement, for example. Um again, to, to go back to, to protecting patient safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It all sounds so reasonable when you, when you say it, but we'll see how it goes. So is there anything else that you would want listeners to, to know about 
um, especially people who are who are really interested in in educating themselves about this this new frontier of psychedelic liberalization and might be based in Oregon or based in Colorado or based in states where they're going to vote um, on decriminalization or legalization. Is there anything else you would want to share with these people? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big lessons from cannabis that I would apply here is that there's all like there's a lot of hype around psychedelics, just as there was and continues to be around cannabis. None of these substances are panaceas. Like none of them are the thing that are going to heal society or heal everybody. Every therapy will have some people who respond and some people who do not. And not responding to it does not mean that somebody is flawed or not enough or anything like that. They just might not be a responder to that treatment option. And uh, I'd, I'd really like to see a measured, thoughtful conversation where, you know, we see these tools of, of healing and consciousness change as tools um, that have been used by humans and other species for a long time in this context. And to, to know that there's other things in addition that we need to be thinking about and considering um, when we want to address, you know, these huge existential issues, like, you know, what is called the mental health crisis. It's legalizing psychedelics or changing the uh, status from schedule one to something different. It's an important step, but it is not an end in and of itself that will fully address those things. So, um, yeah, I just think keeping, keeping some perspective on, on some of the rhetoric, at least that I have seen out there about these things being a panacea, um, I, I think is really, really critical. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and to just wrap up with a, a fun question here, what what is next for you in your research, and what would you most like to to learn or, or know in in your research going forward? Well, I'm excited to see if psilocybin assisted therapy could be effective for some people with fibromyalgia. Um, that would be both a, a really interesting thing from a scientific standpoint, from a societal standpoint, um, from a medical standpoint. And then from a personal standpoint, uh, as somebody who received this diagnosis, um, I, I just find so much meaning in being able to do these sorts of studies that, you know, especially a past version of myself would look, look at um, and be like, oh, I'm so glad that there's now something out there um, about this. So I have a little bit more uh, knowledge and would flail, have flailed around less <laughs> in, in my own healing journey. Um, so I, I think there's that, uh, that I'm, that I'm super excited about. And, and also I'm, I'm honestly really excited to see how, you know, these waves of, of changing what we're thinking of as medicine, uh, what kind of ripple effects that will have, um, both in, in how medicine is practiced and then also in how people are thinking about these things. I think uh, there's a lot that's 
really profound and wonderful that has come out of some of our, our Western practices like antibiotics and vaccines. And I think some of the other pieces, like how we deal with a lot of chronic and mental health issues, um, there's so much potential for improvement, uh, both within medicine through some of these changes that we've talked about today, as well as then thinking about sort of the structures uh, outside of medicine um, within our underlying culture uh, that can contribute to those big picture things. So. Uh, I guess I'm ending with some big thoughts of things that I'm that I'm looking forward to to continue looking into as well. Yes, I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.